Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben. Welcome to my fortnightly podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers, in which it is my intention, I've come to realise, to interview the best and smartest and most interesting photographers on the planet. If you're a regular listener, please consider making a one-off donation or signing up for a small monthly recurring payment. Leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already. And if you're in need of a new website, and frankly, some of you most definitely are, let me know and I'll do you a new one using Squarespace. Perhaps you take the view that it really doesn't matter if your website is crappy, in which case fine, carry on. But it seems to me you might as well have one that looks cool and is easily navigable to present your work at its best, no? Makes sense to me anyway. This week on episode 55, I chat with Renner Effendi who was here recently for Photo London, where she took part in a live Q&A. Rena is an Azerbaijani photographer, born in the capital Baku, whose work focuses on issues of post-conflict society, social justice, and the oil industry's effect on people and the environment. Rena, as she puts it herself, spent half her childhood in one country and the rest in another, growing up during the war, political instability, and economic collapse that marked Azerbaijan's path to post-Soviet independence. From 2002 to 2008, Rena followed a 1,700-kilometer oil pipeline through Azerbaijan, Georgia and Turkey, collecting stories along the way and documenting the impact this multi-billion dollar project had on impoverished farmers, fishermen and other ordinary citizens. The six-year journey became her first book, Pipe Dreams, a chronicle of lives along the pipeline, published in 2009. The project received numerous awards, including a Getty Images editorial grant, a 50 Crows International Fund Award, a Magnum Foundation Caucasus Photographer Award and a Mario Giacomelli Memorial Fund Award. In 2012, Renner published her second monograph, Liquid Land. The book presents a lyrical narrative exploring themes of fragility and environmental decay, in which her images of communities living dangerously among the oil spills and industrial ruin of Baku and the rest of the Ashburon Peninsula are paired with photographs of some of the 30,000 moths and butterflies collected from across the Soviet Union by her father, Rustam Effendi, a dissident scientist and entomologist who devoted his life to lepidopterology. Oh, I knew I was going to have trouble with that. The study of these beautiful insects. Over the past 10 years, Rena has covered stories across the post-Soviet region, as well as in Turkey and Iran, including the 2008 Russia-Georgia conflict, female victims of heroin and sex trafficking in Kyrgyzstan, and the hidden lives of youth in Tehran. In 2011, she received the Prince Klaus Fund Award for Cultural Development, and in 2012, Renner was shortlisted for the Pre-Pictet Global Award for Photography and Sustainability for her series documenting life of the survivors of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And in 2014, she won second and third places in Observed Portrait Stories and Observed Portrait Singles categories of the World Press Photo Contest. Renner's work has featured in publications such as the International Herald Tribune, Newsweek, The Financial Times, Time Magazine and National Geographic. She is represented by National Geographic Creative and Ilex Gallery and is currently based in Istanbul, Turkey. So I hope you enjoyed this chat I had with Renner Effendi. I have a personal project that I'm hoping to continue that I started in 2014 in North Dakota on a reservation called Spirit Lake. And it's about um, a Sioux nation um, living there. And it's focused on abuse and um, neglect, you know, in the community. So I'm hoping to continue that. And 
I've been twice and I've uh, moved into a, a video, been collecting a lot of a video with, um, but not as a, not me myself carrying the camera, but sort of directing somebody with the camera. Hmm. So I'm hoping to turn it into perhaps uh, a film. Okay. But you're shooting stills as well, obviously. Yeah, a lot of stills, yeah. So that's still work in progress, I can say. And it's something that's brewing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Very much in the brewing stage. And I'm hoping to go back. So, um, and that's obviously, you know, the sort of, the, the wider theme was, has become topical because of the um, pipeline, the pipeline. protests. Yes, it's a different reservation. It's a different reservation, but it, yeah, they're nearby. Uh, because what you're talking about is a Standing Rock reservation, and yeah. uh, this one is also in North Dakota, but it's um, but it's put the whole Spirit Lake uh, question of you know sort of indigenous peoples onto the agenda, agenda in a way. Yes. How did you come by that uh, initially? Then that was a very strange uh, set of uh, coincidental events. Um, I uh, got an email from uh, a, a director of a, of a museum in North Dakota, the Museum of Modern Art in North Dakota, in, um, and she, she visited Istanbul Biennial, and she saw my work in the, in the museum there, and she really liked it, and the work was about the oil pipeline. So she thought, this is something very interesting for us in North Dakota, and I would, I would like to bring this exhibition to the museum. So she rented the exhibition and showed it at the museum, uh, you know, the, the project on, on the, the oil pipeline. And then she called me up again and said, how would you like to come on a commission and do some work on this reservation called Spirit Lake? She grew up on this reservation. She was, you know, her family were the white uh, farmer family. Oh, okay. Living on the reservation, being allowed to live on land. And um, so uh, she got me a grant and then um, I went for the first time. Then she, we applied together for the National Endowment for the Arts grant and I got that. And then I came back and continued the work. And this time I brought a cameraman with me. Mm. We've recorded a lot of testimonies on the video right. about abuse. What brought you to the decision uh, that you were going to need some video? Uh, the first time when I was there, I was taking a lot of stills. And the stories that people told me about the testimonies, you know, their personal testimonies about being raped at the age of 11 or 7. And, you know, they were very brave uh, talking about it. It was very emotional, very hard. Uh, but at the same time, they were incredibly brave individuals who, you know, came forward and talked about it. And I thought that would be very something very powerful, you know, to record, mm. um, you know, to, just to hear their voices. And we had these interviews with with the various people. I mean, it wasn't all about rape. It was also about suicide. It was about all these issues that you know pertain to these reservations and uh, that are you know throughout the United States. Um, this this is there's this problem. So, um, so it's not just one place, but it's very indicative. What happens there is indicative of the many problems that happen in other reservations mm. and other parts of the United States. So uh, we recorded these interviews. Um, it was something very powerful, and that kind of gave me an idea. And we recorded a lot of still portraiture, uh, video portraiture, but it was in a way, it was very still, still moments, you know. So I started thinking of maybe perhaps putting together a film um, on mm. this. 
I don't know if it will be a film using photography or just video, or it could be a, something separate with photography and something separate with video. I'm, I'm not um, sure it's going to be mixed uh, right. as one pro, you know, product. But yeah, but you're obviously interested in, in or you're, you're, you're not purist about the stills. You you're obviously um, can see the, the potential for other media. Yes. You know, and to, to tell stories with, with, with whichever media seems I, the right I one. I do, but to be honest with you, I I like to keep them separate. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't, you don't like have to, to mix keep them. them in one. I don't want to mix them in one. If it's a film, then it's a film. And if it's a book, it could be drawings and pictures, but I don't think I want to see everything mixed as one. Sure, sure. You know, yeah. So. Um, so that that's so that's keeping you busy, and then I, yeah. I guess in uh, my head at least, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you um, you seem uh, you know looking at the projects that you've done? You you are very productive, uh, it seems to me. But do you struggle with? Uh, do you tend to procrastinate or mm-hmm. uh, find yourself um, not being as productive as you would l- like to be? I always find myself very unproductive. Really, <laughs> every well, every I think day. It's a matter of perception, in some ways. I mean. Yeah, just looking at the you know the stuff you've done over over the years, it seems like there's a lot of work there, a lot, you know. So, mm-hmm. let's talk about um, how you got how you got here, I suppose. Um, well, you grew up in Azerbaijan. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Mm, very interesting. <laughs> it's it's a very very long conversation. I think. Yes, yeah, it's, it's not an easy question uh, to answer. I mean, it was briefly. It, yeah, it was very interesting. I think that growing up, you know, not just Azerbaijan, but Azerbaijan being part of Soviet Union, you know, we we, we were born in one country and we uh, we grew up and then we found ourselves in a different country. And I think for anyone to have gone through that process, I think it's fascinating. It's really the the, how the identity changes, you know, mm. how everything changes overnight. For me, the it was the microcosm of my school that was something that I observed as this evidence of change, you know, this kind of drastic change in life, you know, how we were, we all of a sudden came back from summer holiday and realized we have no books, you know, there are no books. All the old books have been outdated, the new ones have not been written right. yet, so we were we fell in this knowledge gap. You know, what we learned in school, everything before was cancelled. Right, right. So everything you learned was wrong. Oh my gosh, yeah. So now you have to learn something new. And what is it? Nobody knows. So right. there were a few years of, of this kind of adjustment where teachers were just writing um, lectures out of their heads, you know, kind of whatever they thought was right. So they had to improvise. They were improvising. So, and we were the kind of guinea pigs, you know, sitting in a classroom listening to these teachers improvise on, you know, mm. all these things that have been... So, it, you know, there's no ideology all of a sudden. It's been, Wiped you know, away. rendered obsolete. Right. <laughs> you know, you see these Lenin busts, like, scattered in the courtyard and us you know, burning our pioneer neckties and, and then that's it, that all of that is gone and yeah. what's coming, you yeah. know, nobody knows what's coming. Um, do you remember, I mean, do you remember conversations with your parents where they would, you know, attempt to explain these things to you or, you um, know, did they just kind of leave it to you to figure these things, <laughs> figure it out? Well, yeah, that's the whole thing, that's another story because my parents were dissidents, they were both, they hated the regime, they were anti-communist, my father especially was very outspoken about it and punished for, for it as well. So in my family, I, there was always this, my school would 
you know, try to kind of instill, like make me into a good little communist and then I would come back home and, you know, I'd get that. <laughs> right, so your parents would offer, offer yeah, you the yeah, kind of yes. other side of the They would push argument. it out of me. So I was always like growing up on this like battlefield between two oh, wow. ideologies, you know, between my home and my school. And but was that, was that not... Did that not kind of make you anxious or did it, was that not a kind of difficult thing to have to, you know, deal with? Um, or was I it like parents, were you inclined to sort of go favour their, you know, no, I think I, 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 was a, I was a good young communist. I, oh, you I favoured I favored the school. Okay. Uh, well, I spent most of my time at school, so yeah, I, I thought my parents were crazy and right, right. I just, you know, listened to my teacher. She was my goddess, you know, so... Right. Um, but oh, then, so she was know, an early influence, in was she? Early influence, yeah. She turned me into a nice, uh, upstanding, <laughs> you know. So, but but then at some point, you know, you you realize you see this world crumbling in front of you. So you you know everything changes, of course. Yeah, of like course. as you grow up and become conscious of what happened, what went on. So, um, yeah. No, I mean it. It was very interesting to mm. see this transformation. It's complete transformation, you know. Especially in Azerbaijan, it's a country that has natural resources. Mm. You know, we went from this war-torn, you know, like '90s, where there was nothing, absolutely nothing. You know, not even a cafe where women could sit and drink tea. The tea was only served to men. And then all of a sudden, you have Irish pubs, you know, and right, and, then, and right. everything just happened overnight. Literally, like wow. it was shocking, you know, shocking. This new inflow of new culture and new people and foreigners and you know, I grew up during Cold War. You know, we didn't even we couldn't even imagine. We had delegations of we called them the Americans, but they could be Danish or right, yeah. <laughs> we just labeled all the foreign de delegations as American. They would come to our school and we would stand in front of them and read Shakespeare poetry in English to impress them. And we never knew that they're actually real people. You know, for us, they were all official. <laughs> right, right. So, and then all of a sudden you, you have, you know, this pubs and full of foreigners coming in, you know, yeah, in, must in the have same been city. Extraordinary. It was shocking. Well, you, in the, ultimately, you, you know, you kind of focused on on all that in a way with your first with the pipeline project yes yeah. but um you didn't you started off painting more or less uh, it wasn't until later that you you discovered photography yes i i was always eager to express myself visually in one way or the other and i drew a lot as a child and then i sort of started thinking about becoming a painter my grandmother was a painter my father drew he was my father was an entomologist, lepidopterist, specializing in butterflies, so he drew butterflies with scientific precision, and we had drawings and art books all, always around. And I thought, I will perhaps become a painter, and I took up painting, uh, not, not like in, a, in an institution, but I, I went to a studio of a painter. But my teacher was... Um, sort of he had alcoholic inclinations <laughs> okay and he wouldn't show up for class he was not very disciplined and i sort of got tired of it just coming there and not finding them you know in place and then i thought and then um, i saw an exhibition by magnum that came to baku and i saw photographs for the first time you know photographs used as a medium of expression you know sort of more artistic medium and I was just blown away by how expressive they could be. Mm. So I picked up a camera and I found another teacher with a darkroom who taught me how to develop film and print, make prints. Went so that, to the like, street. 
Yeah, that Magnum exhibition was a big kind of That was point. a big turning point. I think you said you had a choice between that and a McDonald's. Yes, is that right? exactly. What? I was working for U.S. Embassy at the time as an economic specialist. Right. And uh, I had two invitations that came to my desk. One was to the opening of the first McDonald's restaurant, and the other one was the Magnum exhibition. And I considered for a little bit and then decided to go to Magnum. <laughs> so life could have turned out very differently uh, if you'd, if you'd yeah. gone with the McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, maybe I yeah, it could have been good too. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows, exactly. You can never say. Yeah. But um, yeah, you, you've talked before about the experience of having uh, you know, the first camera mm-hmm. in your hand and, um, and that, was, that, was quite, that made quite an impact on you, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt right. I mean, the, you know, the physical, even the physical feel of it, the buttons the sound of it i was just enamored with it from the very first moment i held my hand and it was this old bulky kind of metal nikon and it made like the say it was like cocking a gun you know yeah it was just making this loud sound and i really i loved this kind of the loudness of it for some reason was really appealing to me and just the fact that you could frame anything and then a picture comes out of it, was, mm. um, you know, as opposed to brooding in a studio, thinking, looking at the white canvas and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the immediacy of it. I mean, it sounds horrible, like the painters will probably slap me on, in the face when I <laughs> talk about this, but really it felt right, you know, I'm like being a lazy painter, you know, you just, you can yeah. paint with the pictures. Well, I, so. yeah, it kind of, it makes me real, kind of think that, and I was, I couldn't paint or draw so for me it was almost like you know if I looked at um, a, a, you know if you look at Car- a Caravaggio or something mm-hmm. you go well I could spend 50 years trying to do that and I'd never be able to do it yes. but I can hold a camera and press the button and I can you yeah, know you would think <laughs> you'd think right and then you realise then you realise actually it's not that simple yeah no, the immediacy of it is very appealing especially for the first time you know when you're starting out you think like okay yeah. you can do this this is easy yeah 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 which you know relatively speaking yeah I mean just to to make an image is straightforward. No, it's it's sort of a seduction thing. You know, you get seduced into it, uh, and then you have to work hard to maintain right. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, the you love. Get, you get suckered into it by the yeah, idea very, that it seems very easy. Seductive, very seductive. <laughs> yeah. So you um, you were quite into Diane Arbus. I think was one of your early it's early kind of, inspirations. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What was it about her? stuff that appealed I to I think you. mostly portraiture this kind of looking back at you with this sort of otherworldly um, sense I think the way she focused on the margins of society was very interesting for me it was fascinating as a child I remember I spent a lot of time uh, you know going through medical encyclopedia looking at the various strange you know deformities of the human body and this kind of weird things and you know Diane Arbus in a way she's almost anatomic you know her photographs you know it, and psychological as well the way the way she photographs people it, there's always some kind of sense of maybe she projects it on them I'm not sure but there was always a strange inten- intense intense um, kind of expressions of these portraits that are very interesting for me, mm. interesting to look, interesting to go back and look again. And these relationships she forms, the very the intimacy of these uh, portraits are just mind-boggling for me. Yeah. And Robert Frank was also someone you've mentioned. Yes, Robert Frank, uh, again, early, very early inspiration, very musical photography, you know. I I was listening a lot to 
Tom Waits and for me Robert Frank's pictures are Tom Waits songs basically right. it's the same thing um, so I was very into that yeah that's a nice way of putting it the, mm-hmm. the, you know the kind of Tom Waits songs and yeah. I never thought of it that way mm-hmm. yeah I kind of like Diana because you, you eventually kind of settled on the on the square format and the mm-hmm. Rolleiflex thing what, what was it about what is it about what do you like about shooting square and obviously you know you, you're shooting film and, and is there something about looking down mm-hmm. and the process I think well um, the square I think in terms of composition I like the fact that I don't need to make any decisions whether it's vertical or horizontal and oh that's a point yeah so that's that's very nice uh, and very kind of you can focus straight away on the frame you don't have to worry about so that's that's one step of bureaucracy out of the way and um, then uh, I it's almost an ideal format for portraiture I think it feels like the human body and face just fits into the square for me at least uh, there's always something for me there's always something missing when it's vertical or horizontal or there's too much space on two sides you know Mm. I struggle with the rectangular frame. <clears throat> so so that. And then Rolleiflex um, is a very quiet camera. You know, how I told you I was attracted to the noise of Nikon. Like, over the years, I, I realized that, you know, I like quiet cameras. I like to be sort of um, tiptoeing around the subject without, you know, interrupting too much what they're doing and... and and being more discreet, you know, so it's a very quiet camera. And the fact that I look down also helps the subject relax because they don't see me pointing any phallic objects into their faces. And mm. So, yeah, it's less intimidating for the subject when a photographer is looking down because, you know, you're not in the face. They can relax. They can. You can sometimes have a conversation with them and then when they're when you feel like they're ready and more relaxed then you can look down on your screen and then take a picture so it's I find it much more discreet and kind of uh, easier for me to use mm. yeah. I think you've used the analogy of it's a bit like praying you know it is yeah it's very humbling yeah. <laughs> yeah. so well another experience that I think was probably quite formative was you went to Perpignan I think in sort of 2006 or something mm, really it was formative <laughs> Did, did you not... Um, uh, I did have an exhibition there. I, I had an exhibition in Perpignan. Was that not your first opportunity to sort of meet other yes. photographers? So, I guess that's what I mean. Yeah, I... Um, yes, it was It was the, the first m- kind of major venue where I showed my work mm. and uh, where I've been exposed to kind of the world of photojournalists. Yeah, I mean, I just think because you were, you were, I think, making the point that obviously in, in Azerbaijan you maybe felt a little isolated, that, you know, you were yeah. sort of really operating in a vacuum in a way. Yeah, it, yeah, I was because, you know, not only there's very little exposure to foreign, you know, media, there is barely any local professional right. <laughs> media, you know, outside of commercial and state-run, you know, uh, outlet, media outlets. So, yeah, I was feeling quite isolated back then, for mm, sure. Mm. And then um, then in, in Perpignan, it was a whole different, different world altogether. Yeah. That was in 2006, so quite a while back, 11 years ago. Right. Yeah. So, um, the first 
book you did was Pipe Dreams, which was a very big project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it took you about six years altogether. You're mm-hmm. working on it, and this was about the um, because obviously the big story mm-hmm. in Azerbaijan is the was the oil industry, yeah. and it was about um, a pipeline. Mm-hmm. Which I think took in what three countries or something through three countries through Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Turkey. Right. Yeah, this is another example of, of, of something that, you know a big personal project which actually came out of an unlikely origin because it was a, com- a commission. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? So that started the project um, started as a commercial assignment from BP. They asked me to travel along the segment of the Azerbaijani segment of the pipeline and. Um, photograph communities that benefited from the community development projects funded by BP for a corporate calendar publication. And I was, you know, very curious about this in general. So I said yes. And I hopped on a, you know, four-wheel drive, you know, was driven from village to village, being, you know, kind of being shown the wells and the schools, you know, and the hospitals, clinics, that were built in the villages, you know, thanks to this kind of a, you know, a community development project funded by by the oil company. And in between those projects, through the window of the car, I saw kind of a lot of misery and poverty and just thinking about this pipeline running under, you know, the the area. So, uh, so yeah, and I saw a lot of, um, you know, interesting kind of communities that I wasn't allowed to visit because I was sort of focusing on the calendar. So I delivered the pictures and the negatives uh, to the client. They used maybe one or two, uh, but I'm not even sure, you know, what was the result of it. But then I kind of became adamant about going on my own and doing a more of a journalistic, you know, Mm. journey investigation of all these places and then going to Georgia and Turkey and following the pipeline basically from you know its origin to its end yeah and did you know that it was going to be a big long-term project initially or was it just you know did that just kind of evolve that way it evolved I mean I in the end I realized that almost every subject I touched in Azerbaijan had some connection to oil because it all revolved around the oil. You know, the neighborhood that I photographed for four years when I just started taking pictures was undergoing changes, socio-economic changes because of the oil, the new the inflow of oil capital and the construction boom that followed it. You know, the, I was photographing turn-of-the-century oil fields. Uh, and again, that's something where the oil history of Azerbaijan started. So it all then came together as one project, as mm. sort of segments and chapters of one, one book, one project. Yeah. I don't know if it was before that, but there was um, a moment when, um, you know, you, there's a particular picture of a lady on her deathbed, which, um, mm. you know, was something that just kind of happened naturally. What was, what was the sort of story behind that image? Mm. Yeah, that was a very interesting moment. I was walking down the street in this neighborhood that I was photographing. Um, and uh, the neighborhood, as I said, was undergoing a lot of changes. The old courtyards and sort of turn of the century, one-story uh, buildings that used to be inhabited by poor oil workers, uh, you know, were 
raised to accommodate luxurious construction. So the neighborhood was doomed in a way. And I walked around there with, with my camera and then this man approaches and I was not alone, I was there with my photography teacher who was teaching me darkroom. So we walked together and he approaches because he sees me with a camera and he says, can you please come to my home? My mother is dying, it's her last day of life, would you please photograph her? Which is a very strange request because it's something that you don't invite a stranger to. And that also gave me this, you know, thoughts that a camera is really almost uh, a magical key. Mm, <laughs> a passport. Any, a passport. You can go into any situation that you wouldn't otherwise find yourself in. So I, I went in there and I saw this woman, you know, lying on the bed and the man was standing and then there was another man on the phone. And she was breathing really heavily and I realized like as I entered the house I held my breath because I felt like I, I just couldn't breathe and this friend of mine my teacher he told me 2.815 you know because he saw I was how shocked I was and I set up the aperture I took one frame then I approached a woman I took another frame and I left so two frames you know now if it was now for me I would have spent yeah, probably 10 minutes hovering around trying you know to take pictures you know it was funny because i looked at, i look at my old negatives and i have you know i look at you know these 12 frames and i have every frame is a different situation i thought i should only take a picture once i was kind of a purist about it <laughs> oh really i would take a picture once of a situation or a, or a man or a woman or a portrait and then i would walk Really? and go to another place now it's you like know, a sort it, of William Eccleston approach it's very strange I don't know it was subconscious I didn't I guess I didn't know you could do doubles and <laughs> I didn't do I didn't know I didn't realize you could do more I mean I of course the camera allows you to do more but I I thought you can you only get one shot <laughs> right yeah yeah you know. well it's probably you know you don't want to waste film when it, you know how much but that's I wasn't, it wasn't even like an economic decision yeah, it yeah. was just a spiritual decision very strange I just thought you know that's how it should be and uh, right. and so my negatives are are very interesting my old negatives they have all these uh, different situations and one like 12 different situations on one negative you know do you think that gave you the discipline though to really kind of try and you know be be mindful because i think you know the, the, this difference between film and, and and people who shoot digital where you can really there's no reason not to just you know go go crazy as it were if you're shooting digital but yeah did that kind of stand you in good stead in the future as it were because you were like trying to nail it in one frame almost Yes, I think I think that's one of the problems for me with uh, digital digital camera. It's, I get distracted by the uh, sort of infinite uh, number of frames I can take, and then uh, with film, there's only twelve, and I have to really focus on you know on making it right. So it works much better for me because I lack discipline. I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So uh, I think uh, you have to be really extra disciplined uh, as a digital photographer, yeah. which is something I struggle with. Yeah, well, it gives you the uh, opportunity to not be disciplined. That's, a, that's the problem with it anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's why you have to push kind of yourself to stay within the... Yeah. Some people can do it really well. Yeah. For this um, pipeline thing were you mostly traveling on your own for and i presume it wasn't all i mean it was, you made several different 
trips. Yeah, it was several, it was many, many trips um, throughout the course of six years. I, in Azerbaijan, I was mostly on my own. There were some segments where I traveled with other people or, you know, um, Georgia and Turkey, I had to travel with fixers, local fixers. Mm. Um, and um, because, simply because of the language, you know. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, the, the geography as well. So it was more effective to be with somebody mm. who knows. I was just curious about how you sort of deal with or contend with the sort of solitude of the, the process when you're on your own and the, and the kind of occasional loneliness and all that if you're whether you're good at that stuff or whether you struggle with it um, I think well sometimes it's hard to I remember in certain moments it was hard to push myself out of uh, the house to go out and shoot because of that because you're on you're on your own and it's uh, self-motivational, <laughs> you know, mm. you really have to, and, and it's because you're afraid of the unknown, you don't know what's out there, you know. And by that, I don't mean it has to be a war or a disaster for you to be afraid, just simple interaction with people can be. <laughs> yeah, it can be daunting. <laughs> can yeah. be really, really, you know, emotionally draining. And so uh, just, just push myself out there to know, to like meet strangers and be on the street and, you know, it's very hard sometimes to, you know, you're always dealing with people, you're trying to convince them that you're not a threat, and that, that gets exhausting after a while when you're alone. When you're with fixers, they can do the job for you, they can help you half the way, they can kind of speak the language and kind of help you, sort of yeah, take help some pave the way, take some of that pressure, that, that, uh, pressure yes. And when you're on your own, it's just you. Uh, you have to convince people that they should let you inside mm. you know so that's that's really that takes a lot of emotional preparation so that's the hardest part and the shooting itself is not is not is you forget that everything else exists you just walk and it's very meditative you know yeah yeah you sort of you, you i think you've said that you know you get into a kind of z in the zone as it were and you're very kind of focused and, and single-minded when you're actually yeah shooting. it's hyper hyper focus and that part is once you start starting is the hardest and once you start and you're out there and then it just flows you mm. know mm. then it just it just happens mm. but you're talking about emotional kind of you know the emotional burden of it and and you do some very difficult stories you've done trafficking stories and you've you know obviously you've come across a lot of people in very um difficult situations so what what appeals to you about that kind of those kind of projects mm, i mean the, what appeals to me is the you know it's the fact that these stories need to be told i think uh, for the kind of the common humanity for for people to know that these things are happening for people to be heard you know i think it's um it's important. I think the importance of these stories, the sheer importance of, you know, these, they're quite dramatic, some of them, and, you know, people need to know. It's mm. simple as that. I can't explain it in any other way. You know, I'm, it's not only these kind of stories that I do. There's all kinds of other, you know, less uh, sort of daunting subjects. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm drawn to you know, stories that, that uh, reflect on, you know, the hardship sometimes because they're just very important. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, there's that sort of element of guilt and, 
and and concerned that you know you're you're able to just walk away from these situations. Yeah. And there's been, I mean, been quite a lot of controversy mm-hmm. lately over over ethical issues and yeah. and I guess the question is you know are there even if you're not actively doing any harm are, are there times when you shouldn't take the picture yes sometimes you feel this way or sometimes you take a picture and you realize you should never show this picture you know to anyone I've had those as well um, but um, but you don't mind taking it it's just a question of whether you actually yeah. then use it yeah exactly I mean I've taken a couple of pictures that I've then chosen not to not to show because they would show the subject in a way that I simply would be disrespectful, I think, to show them. Um, you know, it's uh, it's always this kind of ethical debate and moral debate in your head when you work on these subjects, especially trafficking and, you know, especially people in disadvantaged situations. Mm. You know, it was the same thing for me in North Dakota. You know, there's certain knowledge that I had, which that didn't necessarily mean I'm entitled to publish it, you know, and even if the people didn't mind, I realized that it probably wouldn't be good, you know, because this person is a child, for example, Yeah. you know, so, um, so there's these moral decisions that you have to take, you know, while you're at it. The guilt, yes, the guilt of walking away, but that's something that's just professional it's something that we all carry it's something that it's it's the how do you call it the collateral damage you know of what we do you know we are walking away we are getting paid for this we are out there getting paid and in a way uh, we're photographing people in miserable situations and then we're walking away they're there the same way we left them and you know and we go back to our normal lives Sometimes normal, sometimes not so normal. Yeah, <laughs> relatively still, normal. Relatively yeah. normal lives, you know. Well, I mean, what you know, what I think one of the interesting you said is, you know, we we aren't vehicles of change; we're vehicles of information. That was something which I thought was, you know, yeah. a very sort of interesting I mean, observation. Yeah, we are vehicles of information, but hopefully that information can inspire some change. I mean, that's not something we can control hundred percent, but where we are hoping that by informing people, we are kind of in improving sort of overall you know yeah humanity i think just imagine i i don't i remember when when was it i think it was during the crisis uh financial sorry economic crisis 2009 i think there was a newspaper that was printed without pictures do you remember seeing it oh really that was instead of pictures it was empty spaces i don't remember which newspaper did that i think it was trying to think i think it was must have been a french newspaper okay and it was it was words and instead of pictures they had empty blocks and squares and rectangles you know of just nothing and it was a very striking thing because now this is what the world will look like without photographs mm. you know yeah so they and were I making a point really. they were making a point and I think that that's extremely important I mean that's really something that we yeah we need to you know reconcile with yeah Let's talk about um, Liquid Land a little bit, which was your second book. And we've mentioned your dad, um, and he, he comes into, into play very directly here because, mm-hmm. um, as you say, he was an entomologist. Mm-hmm. Well, what's, it, what's the right word when it comes to butterflies? You said it. Lepidopterist. Lepidopterist. Nice word. <laughs> the book is um, a combination of, of your images and, and um, some of his, well, his images that he. Um, taken of butterflies mm-hmm. 
how did it all evolve? I suppose you had you had some manuscripts of his, which I think you'd, you'd had for a long time before you decided to do anything with them. But they they ultimately became part of the book as well. Well, the manuscripts, the, the writing didn't become part of the book, but the photographs did. He photographed um, maybe sixty <coughs> endemic butterflies that were sort of on the verge of extinction in Azerbaijan. And he planned to publish a book of these butterflies and, you know, write about them, <coughs> about the habitat and about the threat uh, of extinction. I included those uh, in the back of the book as captions, but I did not uh, put his writing in the book because, simply because it's scientific and it could be outdated and I didn't want to publish something that I know nothing about. Right, right. So I, I included his photographs and I paired them with my photographs of environmental decay around Baku, the city where we were both, you know, born and grown up. And, um, and uh, along with the portraits of people who live in these conditions. So it was almost a continuation of the pipeline project, but you were focusing on your own backyard in a way. Yes, more or less, but more focusing on the environment, whereas the pipeline project was focusing on the social aspect. So this was more direct environment. And it was also, you know, less journalistic and more of a lyrical kind of narrative. So yeah, it's a, it's a more personal look at it. And also it drew parallels between, you know, his work as a scientist and my work as a photographer with both of us, you know, him hunting butterflies obsessively throughout his life. You know, he dedicated 40 years of his life. He was he's been hunting butterflies since he was a little boy since he was 12 i have pictures of him with a satchel you know right. as a 12 year old boy so and um this kind of obsession you know the hunt there are a lot of parallels yeah very much so yeah it's like you know hunting for images it's, it's the same kind of thing yeah in a way there's always this kind of pursuit you know the pursuit of something yeah butterflies are a really lovely symbol they can be they can be it's a very it's a very useful symbol can be uh used in all kinds of different ways yeah perhaps um in this case these butterflies are all dead yeah <laughs> they're all true. pinned to the flowers and artificially lit and posed for a picture in the studio you know outside of their natural environment whereas my people the people i photographed are in their natural environment and you know un alive right okay <laughs> so well that's way, a, a that neat was, that uh, was a strange contrast analogy. yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, and he, he sort of connected to the world in a way through his butterflies, because as you said, he was a dissident. Um, and um, I think he sort of sent and received samples from all over the place. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, he was sending, you know, he was communicating with foreign scientists by sending him butterfly samples from, you know, uh, Azerbaijan and Central Asia and receiving, you know, various kinds of butterflies in, in the envelopes, you know, from them. I remember he had a beautiful Indonesian butterfly that was um, that he framed in his in his studio. Hmm. So um, he communicated by that because he wasn't allowed to travel. He had a, he was a travel ban was imposed on him because of his, uh, you know, political sort of standing. He was always marvelled at the fact that how. Lepidoptera is such a strange, you know, small kind of, you know, uh, division of science can be <laughs> yeah, <laughs> construed yeah. as something, you know, 
he he could be looked at as somebody political, you know, within this. How did you go about sort of sequencing and because you were pairing the images up basically, so there's quite a lot of you know the sequencing and the editing um, is a very important part of the the process. Was that a difficult thing, or do you enjoy that aspect of it? I enjoyed very much pairing the butterflies with my pictures. Uh, the butterflies, the wings of the butterflies, the colors, they allow uh, for some very interesting, beautiful design solutions, you know, because you can almost, you know, they're, you know basically they're creatures of nature and you can, you know, you can pair them with, with very easily with with anything you know because yeah. it's almost almost every other color every color tinge exists on the on the wing often so i i was able to pair them with this work strangely i looked at other projects and i thought you know first i'd try and pair them with the work from central asia and it didn't come together it was just baku that came together with this uh, particular you know the colors just matched mm. So. And you find lovely sort of accidents, like there was one with a kind of, um, I don't know if it would be a leopard or something, but there's, there's yes. a picture with um, someone with a little yeah. uh, wild cat and, the, and mm -hmm. the butterfly has got exactly the same pattern. So that must be yeah. lovely when you kind of find those kind of things coming together. They were interesting, yes, interesting uh, surprises. There was that. And then another time I paired a butterfly uh, with... It was an oleander moth. I, I paired this butterfly with a bush and a kind of a cityscape with a big tree, you know, bushy tree with kind of purple flowers that matched the wings of the butterfly exactly, precisely. But then reading his notes, I realized that this was oleander moth who used to dwell on oleander trees. <laughs> and right. that was the picture of the oleander tree. Wow. So I paired it to its natural habitat without knowing, wow, you know, yeah. what it was. What you know the process of of making a uh, and overseeing the photo books is that something that you've had a good experience of generally or that's something that you've um, enjoyed? Yeah, I think you know it evolved. I mean, when I made the first book, Pipe Dreams, for me the main, the kind of the main purpose was the journalistic message. Get out this message. Get you know talk about the human cost of oil and and get the message out as wide as possible. With the second book, it was more about creating an object. It was more about creating a book that I would like to collect, hold in my hands, and you know, it was more like a sculpture. So very different. It evolved over the years, and now I'm thinking it should be both. You know, <laughs> ideally, yeah, ideally. you're going to bring those two things <laughs> two together. together, and then that would be a great book. You know, yeah. this the important story with the something that's very tactile and and well done as in terms of design. So that would be ideal. Yeah. Well, maybe on the next one you can perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> You've talked a little bit about, um, you know, kind of listing the, almost, yeah, making lists of, of the elements that you need to sort of build the narrative, you know, the structure or whatever. Can you just sort of talk a little bit about that process? You mean the structure of a book or a project? No, of a project in general, not necessarily the book. I was talking to someone the other day about the idea of making shot lists, you know, literally writing right, down images. Yes, yes. But I don't know if you actually do that so much. I think, yeah, I think, well, often, often when I approach a project, it depends, you know, how short it is, how if it's an assignment that needs to be finished within the scope of five days or if it's something longer or if it takes months, you know. So, but yeah, creating some kind of, 
either mental or the actual kind of shot list almost in a way it's um, uh, in Russian it's called Raskadrovka it's um, what do you call these storyboard it's yeah, a storyboard, storyboard yeah. yeah in a way it's a storyboard so you, you can frame by frame imagine what the story is going to be so it's a wish list it doesn't mean that you're going to get it all but at least it will uh, you know put you in these um, you know in these kind of parameters and you can you can then look for it you can look for things you can organize your work mm. better I think mm. so uh, in some cases it happens subconsciously you just okay I haven't gotten that I need to get that in other cases you have to if it's a longer project then you have to draw out almost draw out a storyboard you know when I did this project on Gandhi in India, I went twice. I spent one month each for each trip. And uh, I drew out a thing that I needed. Like I, I, I wrote down I need to go along the salt marsh and go to all the uh, you know, villages where he stopped and made speeches. I need to go to the Dandi beach and see the end of it. I need to go to the beginning where it started, Ahmedabad. I need to go to his school, his university, and to hometown where he grew up as a child, you know, the library that he visited, you know, all these places. So, so biogra biography mattered, geography mattered. I need to go to a place where he did his first um, satyagraha, so that's Bihar, Champaran, so I went there. I need to find people who are still, you know, uh, following in his kind of you know, steps, footsteps, you know, people who are living, you know, according to his ideals, not just people, but also institutions, organizations. So it, right, it right. all spins out of that, you know, yeah, like yeah. it was a wish list and then you go and sometimes you find good things, sometimes not. Right. But it gives you something gives you to something hold on to. It's almost like location scouting. In yeah, a way. yeah. Like it gives you a map almost. Mm -hmm. But and also, yeah. you know, sometimes you don't find what you're supposed to be finding i think you've talked about the uh, the project that you did in was it romania right uh, yes, yes uh, romania, and, and you were sort of sent off to find a kind of bucolic idyll mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um what happened there with when you failed to find what you were supposed to be finding yeah so i i panicked <laughs> did you i panicked i went there i spent a week and Luckily, this was uh, an assignment for the National Geographic magazine, and they usually give you plenty of time to kind of settle into the story. So I had time. And the first week in the region where they sent me, I was sort of poking around, and I went everywhere, all over the place. I went even to the villages that were supposed to be, you know, very pristine and not using electricity, but they turned out to be logging camps, you know. So I went all over the place, and I couldn't find what I would, what I needed to see. It was the the kind of the nature, the the the, the look of the place has changed. Everybody was wearing tracksuits and driving SUVs, and there were antennas everywhere. There wasn't this kind of beautiful. Mm. pristine landscape and culture that I was looking for and then I I kind I googled uh, the story was about haymaking the culture of haymaking and it needed to be in Transylvania in the region of Transylvania so I just simply googled Transylvania hay and then this other place kind of turned up in my search and I looked at the pictures and I, it looked very interesting you know it looked like people observed traditions still they used uh, medieval uh, forks you know <laughs> to rake hay and 
And I thought this could be interesting, so I called a few people. I found a, a journalist who was was there, and I contacted her. And then I said, "Okay, I'm I'm going." I called the editors, asked them to change the place. They said, "Okay." Right. I went and I found my paradise. I found my yeah. But I suppose with someone like National Geographic, part of it is that they, you know, they've you, they've commissioned you because they trust you yeah. and they trust your instincts, and they they're going to let you you know solve the problem as it were perhaps i mean this was my first assignment for oh, really? national geographic okay. so i really was worried about not doing the right thing but that's why that's precisely why i decided to make you know to to move out of there because i i realized what they want is not going to happen yeah so um you know i was lucky my editor elizabeth christ my editor for the story she was very accommodating and she said you know as long as it's in transylvania <laughs> yeah 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 well, you're good to go okay yeah <laughs> and you've so. got you've got obviously it went fine because you've got um quite a long-standing relationship with national yeah. geographic now as a photographer and they mm -hmm. they commission you yeah. you've done how many I've stories? done now three stories with them mm. three yeah what what is your day-to-day -day kind of work in terms of earning a living you know how does that look for you well mostly i work with magazines also on magazine commissions that's uh, the bulk of my kind of income um i sell prints uh, i teach workshops but now i do less and less of of that simply because i'd like to focus more on taking pictures um, hmm. Mostly, yeah. Most of, most of it, the bulk of it comes from editorial. Yeah. Yeah, editorial assignments. What keeps you motivated? Is it this thing of, you know, sort of telling, getting the information out there, telling the stories? Uh, taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, simple <laughs> you know, as that. I really just taking pictures. I think what motivates me, I'm, I'm the process of taking pictures. You know, I, I get depressed when I don't take pictures. Oh, you do know? you? <laughs> So I like to I like to be out there t photographing. I like to work. I, I, it invigorates me, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a great great thing for me. So, and that regardless of whether it's a sort of job or whether it's a personal project, because uh, you yeah, know, it's, regardless. I mean, some jobs could be not as interesting, but still, still you're meeting new people. You being in new places. You yeah. are. It's always, there's always something, there's always something. Photographically, certain things could be less interesting. I've done, when I was in Egypt, I've done quite a few assignments about Egyptology, you know, photographing objects. That doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, there might not be interesting to photograph, per se, as a result, as a photograph. But just seeing, learning, you know. There's always something you can take from it. There's always something very, very interesting happening. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Well, and what has being a photographer taught you about yourself? Uh, not be judgmental, mm. you know. Um, well, you mean to give yourself? Oh, a, to a give myself, yeah, that well, as a lesson. Taught about myself. Oh, okay. I think being a photographer uh, taught me that I can, I, I can, I have pretty good people skills. I can convince, okay. yeah, you know, people to trust me. Uh, I think that's something I learned as a photographer. I can read, you know, situations on the street, uh, people's moods, I can understand, you know, even though they're foreign, mm. I can still read the body language. One of the most important skills to have, surely, I think. Maybe, yeah, I think, I think with photography, you, that skill gets developed as you go, because yeah. 
that's mostly you're always in a foreign environment. You're always, you know, kind of intuitively <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. reading the street. Absolutely. But, you know, not everyone has, has that. Obviously, yeah. You, you, but I you think do. most photographers do because that's an essential skill to have, yeah. I think, to understand what's around you. Yeah. You know. uh, have you ever felt like quitting? Quitting photography? Yeah. Have you ever become disillusioned with it or...? Not in a very serious way. I mean, sometimes I'd get angry over things and yeah. say, I'm quitting, you know. Yeah. Uh, but then what would I do? Yeah. <laughs> that is the question. That's even no, more exactly, daunting. Yeah. Well, because you've invested, you know, your career. Yeah, I think I've what, done what, a lot. What do you think you would have done if you hadn't, if you hadn't been Maybe I would have become a writer or, mm. or a children book illustrator. Right, you right. Know, yeah. One of those. <laughs> yeah. Are you reasonably optimistic about, you know, the future, though, as far as... Well, both in, well, not in terms of your own work because I think that's you've already established that that's not going to be an issue but in terms of photography as a sort of you know, you know medium one of the things that photography also teaches you but I, which I think might not be a very useful skill <laughs> but uh, and it could be quite scary is to live in the moment you know you just live in the moment and you try and see and try and get by in that moment and what happens in the future I don't know yeah. I really don't know. I mean, that's, it sounds really kind of almost infantile. <laughs> well, no, not really. Sometimes the, uh, the, you know, the wisdom is in the simplest of uh, Maybe. I mean, places. I'm just thinking about today, this year, and then we'll see what happens next year. Then yeah. I'll start thinking. I'll cross that bridge. <laughs> when you come to it. When I come to it. Yeah. You know, we'll see. I can't make any projections. I don't like complaining about the state of the industry. I, you know... Hmm. You just you just have to figure out things yeah, <laughs> as yeah. you go. Yeah. You know. Well, thanks, Rena. Um, Thank you. Really appreciate you making the time. It's great to meet you, and, and uh, you know, it's it's um, you've got um, all kinds of uh, things to do, and um, uh, yeah, it's, it's really nice to, to to be able to do this, and Thank and you. Um, I hope the the thing you've got um, tomorrow goes well. Yes. Me too. Maybe you should do the questions. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Probably not, actually. Yeah.